0: I've been doing a lot of, um, I've had more like religious experience in the past week. Uh, my wife, uh, her grandfather was the, um, my wife, Julia, who's here, her grandfather was the president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. If any of you have a religious background, you might know what that means. And so we were at a holiness camp that's been in the family for 115 years. And this, is, this was like every night, like holiness camp meeting things and old, very old gospel hymns and stuff. And, and Julia is also a, an Episcopal priest. So when we came to D.C. here uh, this morning, we went to the National Cathedral, which was a different vibe than the camp meeting. And then we're, we're here. And it's like, this is like, I'm getting the whole, the whole range and it's great. Um, so we tend to play with uh, two things that no other species does as um, human beings, that is uh, fire and religion. Um, and both can do great good and they both can cause great harm. Um, but, and yet as human beings, we also have this insatiable desire for connection, which is really, it's the desire for connection that is named your church, The Table Church. Um, so we wanna connect to self, we wanna connect to others, we wanna connect to the wide world and ultimately we wanna connect to something beyond this world, uh, something like God, which presents us if we're on this quest with a kind of dilemma in in the 21st century, in the United States at least, it feels as though we only have two options to choose from, either a faith that emphasizes tolerance but doesn't feel like it offers enough juice for a real connection to God, or a faith that is really strong on conviction, but seems to have the fruit of breeding intolerance, um, goes overboard on certainty, and actually makes the world a more dangerous place for people who don't fit in. So how can we foster real connection to self, others, the wide world, and most importantly to God, without also fostering this scourge of religious intolerance that is so plaguing our world. Um, The New Testament actually offers a source from what might be considered a a rather unlikely source. Um, Saul of Tarsus was a rabbi known for his brilliant mind and his religious zeal in combination. So the the Roman occupation forces in Saul's time uh, in Israel had recently executed a peasant prophet from the village of Nazareth Uh, for threatening the Roman order. After the execution of this peasant prophet, his movement seemed to actually gain rather than lose momentum. And Saul, with the backing of the um, religious authorities, went actually from city to city to root out these new heretics by browbeating, by threatening, uh, imprisonment, even by death. So Saul personified the dark side of religion using religion to shame and to stigmatize and exclude people. And I would guess that many in this place and more of your friends who are not here uh, share this same concern about the effect of religion all too often. But the same man Saul has an unexpected, very powerful, um, we might say mystical experience of Jesus, the newly crucified one. And Saul, it's such a powerful experience that he has to spend three years in the Arabian desert just to sort out how his widely accepted reading of Scripture, of the Torah, could have been so wrong about the Messiah and what this means for himself and for his people Israel and for the world. Saul, now known to us as Paul, comes out of the desert with a radical new vision that Israel's God is not about defeating the Roman legions through a warrior king like David. He's not about further separating Jews from Gentiles. Instead, the God of Israel is determined to include all people through the faithfulness of Jesus, to accept them as full citizens in the kingdom of God where Jews can still be Jews and Gentiles can still be Gentiles, and everyone can be accepted by God because of the faithfulness of Jesus. So, Saul, Paul is on his way to preach this gospel in Spain, and he writes a letter to the house churches in Rome. Uh, about six of these house churches are named in the Roman correspondence so we we don't imagine a megachurch we imagine like a little um, network of a few house churches these churches are at a critical juncture when Paul is writing Uh, some years earlier the Emperor uh, Claudius I think exiled the Jewish population which would have included the Messianic Jews the Jewish followers of Jesus who founded the church in Rome um, because the Jewish population had experienced some kind of civic civil unrest uh, some historians think it might have been over the new Messianic uh, uh, movement, as a matter of fact. Uh, once run by the Jewish believers in Jesus, in other words, the churches were now left in the hand of Gentile converts to Jesus. But now, at the time of Paul's writing, under a new emperor, the ban has been lifted and the Jewish population is starting to return for the first time to Rome, including the Jewish believers. In Jesus. And this remix of the house churches in Rome is creating some great tension in the house churches. It's like when your boss comes back after a long sabbatical. You all got along just great without your boss, and now the boss wants to reassert control. And the house churches are disputing two hotly contested religious, moral, and cultural issues. And we read about this in Romans chapter 14 and 15. In a sense, the whole of the letter to the Romans is leading up to this application. Paul calls these two divided groups, um, the two camps, the strong and the weak. Uh, scholars actually think that these are roughly equivalent to our liberal conservative uh, labels. So the strong are less scrupulous about the contested moral issues and the weak are more scrupulous about these issues. Uh, In fact, experimental psychologists tell us that whether a person is conservative or liberal is powerfully influenced by genetics. So your political leanings are about 30 to 40% heritable, which is quite, distressing to find out perhaps. Uh, they, they studied twins who were separated at birth to determine this it's kind of the gold standard in these kind of tests. And liberals seem to have like a default wiring to, be, to need more change in order to have pleasure and conservatives are wired to be more, um, more initially reserved about change and that, that makes them distressed. So the first issue in these two issues that Paul is dealing with is dietary, but the question is a moral one. May Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols in the temples where the butcher shops are located? So when the Jews were there, they they had kosher butcher shops, but after they left, the only way you could get meat in Rome was from the normal butcher shops, which were attached to the temples. And the priests would sacrifice the animal to the local deity and they would be invoking the power of the deity like Bacchus the god of orgies for example over anyone who would eat the meat the strong knowing this said no problem we have no scruples about eating that meat whatsoever the weak said are you kidding are you kidding me To eat meat sacrificed to idols is to sup with demons. This is a first commandment issue. Have nothing to do with idol worship. Faithfulness to God and to the Torah, we would say the Bible, requires that we eat only vegetables here in Rome and avoid eating this meat sacrificed to idols. So, you know, imagine going to Safeway and some of the meat is stamped kosher. Some is stamped organic, and there's also a section stamped Sacrifice to idols. Um, if you came from a religious background, you might feel a little, a little strange about eating the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. In other words, the weak had a very strong case for avoiding this meat. They had, you could say, the stronger biblical case, not to mention a very human disgust response. So the second issue that was under contention in Rome involved the observance of special days. Most likely the Sabbath was one of these contested days. So again, the strong felt free not to observe the Sabbath day. They didn't feel obligated to observe it. Um, And lest you think this is not a moral issue, Uh, The command to do no work on the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath, is the fourth of ten commands. You may have heard of the ten commandments. Um, We refer to the ten commands in the uh, Christian tradition as the heart of the moral law that is binding on all. So this command, unlike any of the others, was also part of the original creation before the Ten Commandments were given so remember in the uh, original creation narrative God rested on the seventh day one, so one could claim not to imitate God and resting on the seventh day was in fact a sin against nature so you can imagine people making a great case for the biblical necessity of observing the Sabbath as a moral issue Now, of course, today, um, neither of these ruffle any feathers. Um, You know, churches are not dividing over these issues. Politicians are not pandering, making one of these issues a wedge issue in the campaigns. But in their time, they were as contentious as any issue that divides the church today. So in the heat of this controversy, in Romans chapter 14... Paul takes a very costly stand for tolerance, for tolerance, and how does he do this? Well, he labels both of these issues, the eating of meat, sacrificed to the idols, and the Sabbath day controversy, he labels them disputable matters. These are not matters of indifference, like should we sing hymns or should we sing pop tunes? in our worship, or is it okay to go to movies that are rated rated PG-13 or whatever? But these are the hot button issues that were lighting up the Roman internet of its day. So in in my book, A Letter to My Congregation, what I did is I simply applied this Romans 14 approach to our hot button issue, which is the LGBT controversy. And I made the case in the book that there's at least a reasonable probability that the few five or six texts in Scripture that address same-gender sex are actually aimed at the common practices of the time, like orgiastic sex, uh, uh, sex with slaves, uh, temple prostitution, and uh, perhaps something that was extremely uh, pervasive in the Roman period, pederasty. Pederasty was, uh, in a sense, a... of informal institution wherein older men mentored boys in exchange for sexual services and there was no real public shame for this at all. The tone of these texts, Leviticus 18, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and others the tone of these texts simply doesn't fit the gay couples in our church who are prepared to take on the obligations and the responsibilities of Christian marriage so on disputable matters Paul says let each person hold to their convictions in other words if the looked at the parking lot of the church you wouldn't just see all one set of signs because there would be room in the church for each group to hold to their own convictions let each person hold to their own convictions Don't pressure anyone to change their conscience on these issues. In fact, honor each other's best intentions in holding their position, even if you disagree with it. Uh, And don't exclude anyone over these matters, and don't divide them over them. So apparently, it's more important to Paul that both sides accept each other with their convictions intact to demonstrate how the center can hold a community together when that center is the risen Jesus. Now, saying our acceptance of each other in Christ is not, I repeat, not contingent on our affirming each other's moral status. And this is something that many Christians just don't practice. We just assume that our acceptance of one another is somehow contingent on our saying, I'm okay and you're okay, so we can be in the same group together. I approve of your moral choices. But the whole heart of Paul's gospel is that our acceptance of one another is not contingent on our extending moral approval. one another that's why this can work and of course there are uh, many things that can ruin community um, that clearly violate the royal law love your neighbor as yourself but there are also disputed matters in the moral realm and these can often be big-ticket items Um, when is remarriage after divorce just another word for ongoing adultery if you read the text in scripture you can make a strong case for that and yet we don't exclude people simply because they're remarried we don't disqualify them from positions of service when is killing in war just another form of murder Probably for the first 300 years the church had a consensus that for a Christian to kill in any war was a violation of the commandment against murder and then that shifted over time. So big moral issues are often contested. What if this is the test of authentic faith? The fact that God is more concerned with how we handle our disagreements than in our resolving our disagreements? What if this is the more authentic test of faith than how right we happen to be? What if God judges us by our willingness to love more than by our getting it right on every important moral issue. You know, a group of people who are more right than anyone else is not good news for the world. It's not good news for the world. If someone knocks on your door and says, I am part of a group of people that is more right than anyone else, you don't think please come in, let's share a cup of coffee and chat. I'd like to learn from you. Every group tends to make this claim and it's not good news. The gospel that Paul preaches produces a different kind of person than that, a different kind of community than that. The gospel Paul preaches produces people who can actually love their neighbors as themselves even when their neighbors are wrong about important issues. The gospel produces people who can fully accept and embrace those with whom they disagree and not just their 275 Facebook friends that they've been calling lately. In other words, it produces people who err on the side of acceptance, full inclusion, because the God they know is a God who has arms wide open. It turns out that acceptance is actually the key skill for making any lasting relationship work, especially marriage. So counselors, therapists, marriage therapists used to work hard to get couples to improve their conflict resolution skills. But over long-term studies, it turns out that Helping couples improve their conflict resolution skills doesn't really help the marriage very much. It gets very meager results. So a researcher named John Gottman um, did some very significant research where he demonstrates that couples that last a lifetime never resolve their core disputes. Couples that last a lifetime never resolve their core disputes. What they do is they learn to accept each other in the face of their core disputes. So I was married for 42 years. I was married right out of high school for the usual reason that someone gets married out of high school to my late wife uh, Nancy who died in 2012. About uh, 35 years of our 42 together we had yet another interaction around one of our core disputes I won't bore you with the details it's pretty mundane but in the middle of it I was kind of like you know doing something that you know yeah whatever and I instead of like defending myself or whatever I just turned to her I said consider my good points and, and she just had herself a great belly laugh. And, you know, the husband in that position, when the spouse laughs, they're like, you know, everything's good. And that was just the expression of the fact that we'd finally achieved acceptance. We were willing to accept each other completely, noting that we came as packages. And if she, she wanted to consider my good points, she had to, she had to deal with me when I wasn't um, living up to her, her hopes and dreams for her husband. Acceptance in the face of our difference is the heart of Paul's gospel in the letter to the Romans So Paul saves his stern voice for liberals and conservatives Who insist they are right and there is no way they can be wrong about being right And he calls them instead to practice costly tolerance As disciples of Jesus To the weak he says Do not judge your more liberal brothers and sisters who don't share your convictions. Keep your convictions, but don't judge those who don't share them. God is the judge and he's standing at the door so you don't have to fill in for him in the meantime. Uh, Specifically, Paul says, who are you? I can just imagine him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? For to their own master they stand or fall, and the Lord is able to make them stand. To the strong, he says, do not hold your more conservative brothers and sisters in contempt. Don't curl your lip at them because they are not as enlightened and as advanced and as chill as you are. They hold their conviction in devotion to Jesus, So when you roll your eyes at them, you're rolling your eyes at him. Gottman actually um, videotaped couples interacting for a week. And he was able, after this time, to develop a system whereby he could watch a couple um, for five to ten minutes and predict within an accuracy of 94% whether they would be divorced within three years. And the sign that he looked for after uh, videotaping all these couples for all this period of time The sign of impending divorce was was not fighting. It was not conflict. It was the curled lip of contempt. Now acceptance to Paul means full, not partial, embrace. Indisputable matters always err on the side of inclusion. So in his context, it doesn't mean everyone has to eat meat sacrificed to idols. If it's against your conscience, don't do it. You abstain as part of your devotion to Jesus and that's a beautiful thing. But insisting that others abide by your scruples that you cannot do, Paul says. Uh, Paul does not assume that this kind of full acceptance is actually very easy to practice in a real life community. Um, So he ties acceptance to the heart of the gospel. The gospel he's taken the previous chapters in this very long letter to unpacked. To Paul, the gospel of Jesus is incredibly good news for the world and it's subversive and the heart of it is this practice of acceptance. The gospel to Paul is subversive because the Roman emperor claimed to be the son of God and the announcement of his reign was called gospel. So when Paul is using these terms, he's fully aware that he is like tweaking uh, Rome. Rome prided itself furthermore on holding a very diverse and disparate community together by Roman power, which meant brutal might if you didn't comply. And this was the glory of the Pax Romana, that that Rome could hold all these very different cultures and traditions together, but only at the threat of brutal force. Paul wants to show that the weakness of God revealed in Jesus is stronger than Roman might. Might does not make right. Love is the right that God requires and by the weakness of the gospel, Jesus is able to hold together that same disparate group of people but without resorting to force or brutal violence only by the power of love, the heart of which is acceptance. So here we are 2,000 years later. By all measures, the church is not modeling this message to the world, is it? I mean, I think since the Protestant Reformation, how many divisions have there been of Christians? You know, how many multiple, multiple thousands of divisions have have there been over lesser issues than eating meat sacrificed to idols or Sabbath observance? By all measures, the church is not modeling this gospel to the world, and the world is not buying the gospel. Paul is not preaching, fight to win your religious battle, and here's how. Uh, I think what you're doing here at the table, church, is sounding a very different note. I think you're moving beyond the culture wars that were started by the baby boom generation uh, that have really paralyzed us nationally and even globally. Some of the most significant problems facing our generation were unable to address because of the culture wars. You're providing in your actual community as you walk this out you're providing a learning laboratory of love in the power of acceptance to guide us in the, sh- in the face of our very sharp disagreements. You know, after the gay issue, a- after we spent all our energy fighting over the gay issue, there's going to be another issue that is going to rack the church. And so we have to find a way To process these things that doesn't require us excluding a group of people or stigmatizing them or discriminating against them but allows people to hold their conscience convictions intact and because Jesus is risen and powerful he can hold that whole group of people together that would be good news for the world that would be a message that, that the world could say I can learn something from what's going on here. As I understand it, on LGBT, you're saying there isn't enough consensus in our community or the church at large to justify any discrimination or exclusion of LGBT people. We trust God to judge on these matters, which means, hello, we don't have to. When you say the LGBT community is welcome at the table, you don't mean welcome, but you mean Welcome, period. And that is really good news. And yet everyone can have their own convictions on this issue. But, you know, it's not just good news for the LGBT community. It's good news in a more profound sense because it points to the power that can hold people together despite our sharp disagreements. I mean, this is what it takes to get your extended family together for Thanksgiving dinner, isn't it? It's just, it's just what it takes to get a family together around a table. This is what it takes to hold a marriage together. Why wouldn't it be what it takes also to hold a church community together? I suspect that some of you who come especially from uh, more religious traditions and families have important people in your life who are nervous about how your church is walking this out for you it's a costly tolerance you have a social price to pay for, for walking this Romans road if this were an easy road many would already have taken it I think as a matter of history we don't know if the Roman house churches opted in to what Paul was advocating Paul was respected there but he wasn't the founding father of the church in Rome and we don't know if the Roman churches did what he asked them to do he just made the invitation so in a world of sh- very sharp differences intense disagreements isn't it time to give this a try or is the old way working so much better for us so that the gospel can become again a prophetic message so the gospel can be good news for a world that's threatening to fly apart at the seams in many different ways so keep walking this Romans will wo- don't stop keep on this road amen